0: So, Romans chapter 1, and then if you would care to mark uh, your place in Romans chapter 15, we will also be reading some verses from there. This is the word of God, let us hear it. Romans 1 and verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God, Which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Let me pause there long enough to point out what I probably pause and point out every time I read this verse that the gospel is found in the prophets of the Holy Scriptures, or in other words, in the New Testament or the Old Testament. Paul is drawing from the Old Testament to preach the gospel. Very important to note the unity between the Old and New Testaments when it comes to the gospel. They both present the same message of salvation. Verse 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end you may be established. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant brethren that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And then if you would turn over to chapter 15, we'll read a section from this chapter beginning in verse 23 where Paul writes, But now having no more place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come to you, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 29 in chapter 15. And we know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Verse 29 in particular, I am quite sure that I have referenced this verse often from this pulpit here. I do not think I have ever actually preached on it. Look at what it says. Verse 29 And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Even though Paul had never been to Rome at the time he wrote this letter, he did have a strong desire to visit there. He makes that desire known to them in chapter 1. He says, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto. So he had the desire to go to Rome. He had never been there. This desire is also expressed again near the end of the letter, and that's why we read from chapter 15. So in verse 23, Paul writes, But now having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, Whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. So you see how in the beginning of the letter, how near the end of the letter, uh, he emphasizes his desire to be with them and to be with them in person. What I'd like to call your attention to, however, is that in verse 29, Paul expresses not merely his desire to come to them, but but he also expresses and expresses confidently the manner in which he would come to them at Rome. And so he writes, And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Underscore that phrase, the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Whenever I have occasion to make reference to this verse, and I told the people in Orlando this, and I told the people in Santo Domingo this, that whenever I make reference to this church, I tell the people in my congregation to either write my name or write my initials next to that verse, so that whenever you read it, you will remember to pray for me in connection with that verse. I wonder how many people here have my initials next to that verse. Could it be that you have gotten new Bibles since the last time I called on you to do this? And uh, now I'm calling you to do it again. Just make a note in the margin or at the bottom. Write my name, write my initials there, And in Orlando and in Santa Domingo, I recommended to both congregations that they write the name of their pastor Uh, in the margin next to that verse that makes reference to the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. I dare say that this is what every minister of the gospel should want for his ministry, and this is what every congregation should desire of their preacher. It certainly is my hope and prayer that in the days to come, Logan Elder and Ramon Sosa that each time they step behind their pulpits, they will do so in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is my hope for every minister, um, really every minister in our denomination and beyond, that they would step behind the sacred desk in that manner, in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ, Be they ever so young in the ministry, be they ever so ancient in the ministry, uh, that is something they should desire and something that uh, each congregation should desire for their pastor. So for a minute or two this afternoon, I want to look at this text just a little bit and analyze it before you under three headings. Again, the words of the text... I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Let's think first of all on the meaning of the fullness. What is Paul talking about when he says the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ? And this gives rise to a question, and it's a question that I posed Uh, to the congregations in these two places, as well as to their ministers, let me pose the same question to you. It's really very simple, but one worth contemplating. The question is simply this. How blessed are you? How blessed are you in the gospel? What all do you have in Christ? What has salvation brought to you? What are your long-term prospects for the future? And by future, I mean not only your future years, but I mean uh, your after-this-life future. And even beyond that, your after-this-world future. For this world is coming to an end. Truth told, you are blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And those blessings include his sovereign choice of you. They include the prospects of being holy and without blame before him in love. That's in Ephesians 1, 4. Can you begin to fathom that? You... And me, us, poor, vile, guilty, hell-bound, hell-deserving sinners, being in the presence of he who is altogether holy and being in his presence without blame. Oh my, we are bountifully blessed, aren't we? You've been adopted into his family. Again, from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. He has made you accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1, 6. Do you find those words easy to gloss over? Think about that for a moment. He accepts you where others may not, where those among your peers or those uh, that uh, you work with, uh, those in the atheist world who may have great contempt for you, far more important to know that God accepts you. And much more, as followers of Christ, nothing can ever ever separate you from his love. Neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ your Lord. Romans 8 verses 38 and 39. His blessings include the forgiveness of all your iniquities. Who healeth thee of all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. That's from Psalm 103. And the thing I love about that catalog of blessings that are found in that 103rd Psalm is the emphasis on the word all. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. So we're pretty blessed, aren't we? And how we need to be reminded of it again and again. And then there's the blessing of Christ himself. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John writes, chapter 1 of his gospel. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And then note this next statement in verse 16. And of his fullness have all we received, and grace for grace, or more literally, grace upon grace. Of his fullness, of Christ's fullness, have have all we received. And because Christ is with us, and Christ is for us, and we belong to him, and are joined in union to him we have received the fullness of grace. Grace, you see, can be viewed as being manifested in a person, the person of Christ. Grace and peace are multiplied to us. Dr. Cairns used to say it this way. When God gave us his Son, he gave us the greatest blessing that heaven possessed. If God would give us all the gold in this world and all the material things that carnal souls try to accumulate to themselves, if God could give us all the world's fancy toys, so to speak, it would amount to nothing in comparison to what he's already given us by giving us his son. I try to mention this on occasion at our prayer meetings. I don't know if I've done it recently. All the things that we seek God for in the place of prayer, all the legitimate things, the salvation of souls, the reviving of His church, the advancement of His cause, all very legitimate things. And as we seek God in prayer for very legitimate things, we should never lose sight of the fact that everything we seek does not come close to comparing to what God has already given us because he's given us his son. He's already given us the greatest blessing. Everything we seek him for are lesser blessings. I remember at my own ordination, some of you were there, some of you weren't born yet. This was more than 20 years ago now. And it was my turn, at long last, to address the congregation. That's the way these orders of service work, you know. In Orlando and in Santa Domingo, um, we received uh, from Dr. Saunders um, a welcome from the Presbytery. Uh, Dr. Pollock, he's the one who read the prescribed questions that, uh, that the candidate had to answer and then sign our substandards. And then it was my turn to um, give the message, the charge, to uh, the candidate, to to the newly ordained man at that point. The charge comes after he's been ordained. We have him come down in the front. There is a laying on of hands of the man. There is an ordination formula uh, that is read, and a prayer that is prayed, both tasks which fell to me. And... um, And then the charge. So, and then, after all of that, the newly ordained minister gets his turn to speak. Which, uh, thankfully, is short. Because nobody else is. But, uh, all very good. But, thinking on my own ordination here in this pulpit, I said to those who were on hand for that occasion, that I considered it one of my primary objectives in my pulpit ministry to convince the followers of Christ that they are bountifully blessed. I charged the minister in Orlando and the minister in Santa Domingo with the task of driving the point home that the Christians to whom they minister would need to be convinced again and again that they are indeed a blessed people. I'm afraid it's a mark of our depravity that we have this ongoing tendency to doubt it when we came into the temptation of walking by sight rather than walking by faith, then there can be a very real tendency of forgetting how blessed we truly are. The task of a minister of the gospel is in large measure to enumerate those blessings to the people of God, and preachers need to remind their hearers that their blessings are expensive blessings that cost Christ his life blood. And we need to be reminded that we are unworthy of the blessings that God freely bestows in Christ. And we need to preach to our hearers the basis for our blessings. They are based not on any merit we possess, but they are based solely on the merits of Christ's life and death. So preachers have the task of making sure their hearers understand the nature of their blessings and that they understand the nature of Christ himself so they might know how far he condescended in leaving heaven's glory to come into this world to save us. And after we've preached on all of these topics and recounted all of these truths, there's something more that the people of God need if they're going to know the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. In order to know that fullness, the people are going to need the ministry of the Holy Spirit to minister the truth and reality of those blessings to their hearts. I have said on occasion that the greatest gulf in this universe is not necessarily the gulf between heaven and hell. You remember that parable or that story of the rich man and Lazarus? When uh, the rich man desires Lazarus to come over and just give him a few drops of water, And, uh, of course, Lazarus can't do it. Um, He tells the rich man, there is a great gulf fixed between us, and I cannot cross over it. I suggest to folks that I know of an even greater gulf than that at times. It's the gulf between our head and our hearts. We can have so much up here, can't we? If you're good, if you're intelligent, if you are given toward academics, you can study uh, all the theological volumes, and if you have good memories, you can keep it there and utilize it. But to get it from here to here is what is needed in order for your life to be transformed, and that doesn't happen apart from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is why we need the Holy Spirit rather interesting, in Santa Domingo, one of the things that uh, they have to deal with. Thankfully, it wasn't as pronounced this time as it was the last time I was there, and that is a very loud and raucous charismatic church, practically right across the street from them, who believe in uh, turning up their speakers full volume, and I guess trying to drown out everything within a five-mile radius. Thankfully, that wasn't near as bad uh, this time around. And I'm sure that people that are in that realm uh, are quite convinced that they are knowing the ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, who leads them, I guess, to be raucous and loud and do speak in tongues, if you want to call it that. Um, We, of course, disown it all. We see it as phony, but that does not take away from the fact that we do need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what we need him to do for us is to take the truths we profess in our heads and bring them home to our hearts. Because when the Holy Spirit does that, then our religion goes far above and beyond mere theory and academics. It becomes truth and reality to our lives, and our lives are transformed. Let me read this prayer from Ephesians 3. There are two prayers in Paul's letter to the saints at Ephesus. I think you could say that ultimately they both pray for the same thing, which is spiritual illumination. But let me read this from Ephesians 3, verse 16. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that she might be filled with all the fullness of God. There's our term fullness again, fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now, in this case, The fullness of God Himself dwelling in our hearts by faith. That's a prayer for spiritual illumination. It's a prayer that your knowledge of Christ's love would be known to you in an experiential way, to the degree that your heart is filled to overflowing in the truth and reality of that love. That doesn't happen automatically. That's one of the reasons why we meet in the middle of the week to pray. Lord, make your word effectual. Lord, grant that the preacher, when he stands up and preaches, will do so in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel and that it won't simply remind me of things I may already know or maybe even add to me something that I don't know, but Lord, grant that it will impact my life in such a way that I am filled with all the fullness of God. So that is the need. That is something of um, the meaning of the fullness. Let me hasten here just to remind you of our need for this fullness. The fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. I, I said at the beginning... Paul had never been to Rome at the time he wrote this epistle. The fact that he had never been to Rome, however, didn't mean that he didn't know anything about the Christians at Rome. In fact, the Christians he wrote to had established for themselves quite a reputation for their faith in Christ. So Paul writes in Romans 1, verses 7 and 8, To all that be in Rome... Beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. You see what I mean when I say they had a worldwide reputation for their faith in Christ. They were that well known. And Paul had heard of it and knew of it. Keep that in mind. Paul is writing to Christians, not just to any Christians, but Christians of a a very high spiritual caliber. They had a worldwide reputation for their faith. And then Paul says in verse 15, chapter 1, As much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also makes for an interesting point to ponder, doesn't it? Why would Paul be ready to preach the gospel to those at Rome? Weren't they already Christians? Didn't he just say they had a worldwide reputation for their faith? We have a tendency at times to separate the word of God into two separate categories. There's the gospel which is preached in order to lead souls to Christ. And then there's the whole counsel of God that we preach once the gospel has served its purpose and souls have come to Christ. What is interesting to note in Romans is that Paul doesn't make any kind of distinction like that. At least not in Romans He says he's ready to preach the gospel to those who had already benefited by the gospel and had gained a saving interest in Christ. Why would such a ministry even be necessary if they had already gained a saving interest in Christ? And the answer is really very simple. Christians still need the gospel even after they've gained a saving interest in Christ. The gospel is essential for your growth and grace. It's as the truth of Christ and his salvation fills and thrills your soul that you'll find the fire of devotion ignited in your heart and fanned to a blaze. We we're talking about fire this morning in Sunday school in our Pilgrim's Progress discussion. What does that fire symbolize? And Alan pointed out to us, quoting from Bunyan, that it has to do with the ministry of grace in our lives. Devotion, ignited in your heart and fanned to a blaze. And in the fire of that devotion, you'll be motivated by humble praise and thanksgiving to be holy as Christ himself is holy. So that's one Uh, need that we have for the ongoing ministry of the gospel. There's another reason why we need the continual ministry of the gospel, and that's because even as Christians, we continue to sin. There's no point denying it. John says if you deny it, you're a liar. You're calling God a liar. If you deny the presence of sin in your life, Oh, hopefully uh, the grip of sin has been broken, and in fact we're told that we are no longer under sin's dominion, but it's still there, and we know it, and we wrestle against it, and Paul especially goes into some detail about that in Romans chapter 7 where he says a uh, a little later in that chapter, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing, for the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And this brings the apostle to a condition in which he exclaims, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? There is a sense, you know, in which Christians have to acknowledge we are wretched. Especially when we think of sin, our ongoing battle with it, The times that it seems to get the best of us. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death. And because of that ongoing battle with sin, it becomes necessary then for preachers, and I charge Logan and I charge Ramon with this, uh, never cease to preach hard against sin. Our task as preachers is to expose it and condemn it and warn our people about it. But then we must also do what Paul does. He shows how the gospel gives us victory over sin. After describing this intense inner struggle that makes him wretched, he then goes on to preach the solution which is found In the gospel of Jesus Christ, I pointed out that sometimes our Bible's divisions into chapters can become a form of distraction to us. That is a man made device dividing the Bible into chapters and verses. That was not the work of the apostles. We don't look at that as being inspired of God. Sometimes it's a useful tool, sometimes it's a distraction we need to keep ever in mind that after we have read of all of these things that contribute to Paul being a wretched man, then there comes the statement in chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Here is a major factor then and how we gain the victory over this internal struggle. It begins with no condemnation. And the reason there's no condemnation is because there's already been condemnation. Christ was condemned in your place. Christ was the propitiation for your sins. And Logan and Ramon, make sure your people know what propitiation means. And I hope that you folks know. You should. Especially homeschool moms. No excuse for your children not to know this, mom. You teach it to them. What propitiation means. Christ has appeased God's wrath and satisfied justice. So there is ongoing need for the gospel of Christ. We need it to grow in grace. We need it because we still sin. And it draws us back to God through Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins. Let me close quickly with a word on the confidence we can have of this fullness. You'll notice from our text, Paul was very confident that when he did at last find the opportunity to travel to Rome, he knew that he would come to them in the blessing of the gospel and he knew how he would come, so we read his words and note the beginning of it. He says, And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Interesting point to ponder. What made Paul so sure of that? Surely it wasn't because he was confident that he was a gifted speaker or an orator of sorts who could sway audiences in the power of his ability, you know, to speak. And in fact, we're generally led to believe that Paul was not a gifted speaker at all. But that was not among his gifts, nor do I think his confidence of going to them in the fullness of the blessing was based on being a scholarly theologian. I think we'd have to say that his confidence, at least in part, is traceable to the fact that he was certain about Christ. He knew who Christ was. He knew what Christ had accomplished. He was sure that Christ was risen from the dead. Some of you may recall, after I was ordained that one of the books, one of the earliest books that I preached through from this pulpit was the book of Acts. And I did so with very deliberate design. Every church wants to be like the church in the book of Acts. So do we. Uh, But what does that mean? What was the church in the book of Acts like? Uh, To most people's way of thinking, it means two things. The church was large and grew fast and spoke in tongues. So if we want to be like the church in the book of Acts, we've got to be large and grow fast and speak in tongues. Uh, But then you suggest, uh, but what about preaching? Wasn't it when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that thousands were saved? To which the modern response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. We have to adopt different methods if we want to get large and grow fast, to which I reply, it really didn't work then either. (laughs) Not because it was an automatic mode, you know, that had a guaranteed result. Uh, No, it worked then because the Holy Spirit moved. And, What we have to see now is for the Holy Spirit to move through the preaching of the gospel. Okay, but, and one of the things I pointed out constantly during our time in the book of Acts, is that the people in that early church were convinced in the depth of their hearts that Christ was risen from the dead. That wasn't just uh, part of an empty creed that they gave assent to. They knew it was true. Paul certainly knew it was true. He met with the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. He knew he was risen. And because they knew he was risen... Oh, you could scatter them from their homes. You could arrest them and put them in prison. You could even execute some of them. But one thing you could not do is you couldn't shut them up. They knew Christ was risen. So they're going everywhere, preaching the gospel that was vindicated by Christ's resurrection. So Paul's confidence was in Christ, not in himself, Another contributing factor, and with this I close, and this is what really brings the matter home to all of our churches, Orlando, Santo Domingo, Indianapolis, etc., etc. After expressing his confidence, notice what Paul goes on to say in verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Paul knew and appreciated what prayer could do, didn't he? I think it's fair to say that his confidence in coming to Rome in the fullness of the blessing was based on his confidence in prayer, his own prayers and the prayers of others for him. And this is why we've got to make sure that we are constantly in prayer. Doesn't happen automatically, but it does happen in answer to prayer. And if we have the desire for this pulpit ministry To manifest the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ, it will come in answer to the prayers of God's people. Let's close in prayer for now. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow in Thy presence now, we thank Thee for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for how bountifully blessed we are in our salvation. We thank Thee, Lord, for sins forgiven. We thank thee for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. We thank thee we've been adopted into the family of God. We thank thee, O Lord, that our sins are washed away, as far away as the east is from the west to be remembered against us no more. We thank thee that we can call upon God as our Father, and that heaven is our home. O Lord, truly, we are richly blessed of thee. Forgive us, O Lord, when we doubt it. Forgive us for our failures too often to live in the light of it. We pray for the help of thy Spirit. May he minister truth and reality to our hearts so that we walk with thee in humble praise and thanksgiving and we strive to be holy from hearts that are filled with gratitude to thee for all thou hast done. We thank thee, Lord, for what thou hast done in Santa Domingo and in Orlando. We know that these churches have been engaged for a long time in prayer and thou hast seen fit now to answer by bringing the church in Santa Domingo into our denomination and providing a minister for them and by raising up the man to be the next under-shepherd in Orlando May these works be bountifully blessed of thee, dear Lord, in the coming days, and may it please thee to raise up many others, bring them to our seminary, that we may have the privilege of training them and sending them forth for the extension of thy kingdom and the building of thy church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.